Hey everybody, it's Dan Dan, and we are going to dive into a study of the third tradition of Alcoholics Anonymous right here in our 12 Steps and 12 Traditions. So tradition three, man, it's important because we all have opinions on this. You see stuff floating around the internet saying we need to get rid of that group or this group or we can do this or not that. However, we do have traditions for a reason. So tradition three comes about like all the traditions, through the effort of trial and error, through figuring out what works and what doesn't by groups getting out there and making mistakes and failing and learning from it. So the only requirement for AA membership is a desire to stop drinking. But what if they're just a heavy drinker? What if they're, what if they are violent? And what if they are criminals? What if they aren't just these pure moral and ethical alcoholics like I am. What if it's like that? And this is what tradition three is for. The basic gist of this is nothing less than we owe it to every human being that might need our our program, the ability to come in the door and give it a try. They don't even have to be sober. They just have to desire to stop drinking. And this builds on the first and second traditions in a special way, in that the concept of judgment, that we know who belongs as an AA member, no longer flies at all. The idea that there is a particular type of person or a set of circumstances doesn't fly at all. That anyone, regardless of their situation, is welcome into AA, and this is going to have some things that are difficult for some of us because we have our own opinions, what I think of as our foes, right? Our enemies, our fears, opinions, and habits. Not F-O-E, foe, but F-O-H. Fears, opinions, and habits. So let's, let's dive into this tradition right away. Here we go. Tradition three, the only requirement for AA membership is a desire, a desire, a wish to stop drinking. This tradition is packed with meaning. And the reason why it's packed with meaning is because it bumps right up into our fears, opinions, and habits. For AA is really saying that to every serious drinker, you are an AA member if you italicized, if you say so, you declare yourself, no one else. Hmm, you can declare yourself in. Nobody can keep you out. That nobody includes that somebody that might want to, that nobody. No matter who you are, no matter how long you've gone, no matter how grave your emotional complications, even your crimes, we still can't deny you AA. That's really the end of the story. You can stop right there. But we got to take a visit with old atheist Ed and a couple of other stories first. We don't want to keep you out. Now, that's not true of everybody, is it? I know when I was new to AA, there were certain people I wanted to keep out. (laughs) That's just true. But we don't want to keep you out. AA as a whole, as an organization, doesn't want to keep anyone out. We aren't a bit afraid you'll harm us. See, there's people I've been afraid of. Never mind how twisted or violent you may be. We just want, and this is a critical sentence, we just want to be sure that you get the same great chance for sobriety that we've had. We cannot keep what we've gotten so freely if we do not give it away. So, you're an AA member the minute you declare yourself. It's as simple as that. Now let's break it down a little bit. To establish this principle of membership took years of harrowing experience, trial and error. 
In our early time, nothing seemed so fragile, so easily breakable as an AA group. Hardly an alcoholic we approached paid any attention. Most of those who did join us were like flickering candles in a windstorm, fragile. Time after time, their uncertain flames blew out and couldn't be relighted. They relapsed and were never seen again. Our unspoken constant thought was, which of us may be the next? It's just so full of fear, right? A member gives us a vivid glimpse of those days. At one time, he says, every AA group had many membership rules. Hmm, many membership rules. Everybody was scared witless being stupidly scared. That's what witless means, stupidly scared. Be scared witless that something or somebody would capsize the boat and dump us all back into the drink. Our foundation office asked, and that later became the World Services Office. Our foundation office asked each group to send in its list of protective regulations. The total list was a half mile long or a mile long. If all those rules had been in effect everywhere, nobody could have possibly joined AA at all. So great was the sum of our anxiety and fear. Fears, opinions, and habits are foes. We were resolved to admit nobody to AA, but that hypothetical class of people, this is kind of funny, who termed, who we termed pure alcoholics. Like, I have nothing at all wrong with me but the way I drink. Simple as that. Except for their guzzling and the unfortunate results, the unfortunate results thereof, they could have no other complications. So beggars and tramps and asylum inmates and prisoners, queers, plain crackpots and fallen women were definitely out. <laughs> Think about that. How ridiculous is that? You know, it's, in, it's an interesting thing that the people that we stereotypically today think of as alcoholics, right? Some of these homeless people or, you know, somebody that's down and out and stuck in their house and the, that these are the people that they would initially keep out. So it goes on. Yes, sir. We cater only to pure and respectable alcoholics, the ones that beat their wives and lie and steal and cheat, those kind of respectable alcoholics. Any others would surely destroy us. Besides, if we took in those odd ones, what would decent people say about us? We built a fine mesh fence right around AA. So this has gone on. And if you have an idea of who should be allowed and not allowed, there's this thing floating around on the internet from a guy from 1997 who talks about how the heavy drinker pollutes the group and it makes it so that the real drinker can't get sober. And of course, that's nonsense. And this falls right up against it. This pushes right back on that idea and says, no, everyone is allowed. It goes on. Maybe this sounds comical now. Maybe you think we old timers were pretty intolerant, but I can tell you there was nothing funny about the situation then. We were grim because we felt our lives and homes were threatened. They were afraid. And that was no laughing matter. Intolerant, you say. Well, we were frightened. Naturally, we began to act like most everybody does when afraid. After all, isn't fear the true basis of intolerance? Yes, we were intolerant. How could we then guess that all those fears were proved groundless? How could we know that thousands of these sometimes frightening people were to make astonishing recoveries and become our greatest workers and intimate friends? These ideas come way after 
the chapter to wives, which goes through the four different types of alcoholics, kind of like the stages of alcoholism as we fall into the trap. And it, even there, they recognize that the most desperate of us are really the best candidates. However, when it came to our group, when it came to us being sober, that safety, that comfort, that intrusion of the sick person, that the words that they use and the sickness they seem to bring into the room, right? Instead of going towards them to help them, we just wanted to protect ourselves. So that self-centeredness, that selfish inward view is what this tradition is trying to push up against and move out and say, no, 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 it is the difficult person we're to go towards. It's the one that's exploring the idea of alcoholism we're to get involved with. We're not to be afraid of anyone's. Hmm. Was it credible that AA was to have a divorce rate far lower than average? Great question. Could we then foresee that troublesome people were to become our principal teachers? There it is, of patience and tolerance. Boom. It's the tough situations that help you practice the spiritual tools. Could any of them imagine a society which would include every conceivable kind of character and cut across every barrier of race, creed, politics, and language with ease? Religion, you could throw that in there. Why did AA finally drop all of its... Why? What? Why did AA finally drop all of its membership regulations? Hmm, let's find out, Bill. Why did we leave it to each newcomer to decide himself whether he was an alcoholic or whether he should join us? Why did we dare to say, contrary to the experience of society and government everywhere, that we would neither punish nor deprive any AA of membership, that we must, critical idea here, Never compel anyone to pay anything, believe anything, or conform to anything. We arrive here on our own. We declare ourselves on our own. We find the pathway to God on our own. We find the way through the steps on our own with the help of a sponsor a lot of times, and we get it on the time and place that we are at right then. We can follow the program of recovery if it doesn't have conditions. So when you think about unconditional love, I want you to ask yourself, what are the conditions of your unconditional love? People will say that about religion, right? That this God, this deity of religion, whatever religion it is, loves unconditionally. And then unfortunately, there's a long list of requirements to access that love. Right? You got to believe something, do something, point some direction, whatever it is. You got to do these things in order to experience these so-called unconditional love. And it does seem a lot like there are a great deal number of conditions to do it. AA took that path as well, was becoming a religion or some sort of cult or some sort of club style thing. And they stepped away from that wisely to open the door to everyone. When the conditions are truly left up to you, what are your conditions for membership to AA? When you can deal with you exclusively, you can find a path into AA. So it goes on. The answer now seen in tradition three was simplicity itself. At last experience taught us that to take away any alcoholic's full chance was sometimes to pronounce his death sentence and often to condemn him to endless misery. We, you know, we thought at the time this was the only real answer. Sure, there were spontaneous conversions. Yes, there were people that got well through religion or through some other therapy that that happened but only rarely this was a reliable methodology by which people could participate and perform 
and achieve sobriety. So to not make it available, it's like keeping something from someone that's going to keep them alive. Hmm. Who dared to be judge and jury and executioner of his own sick brother? As group after group saw these possibilities, they finally, here's that important thing again, abandoned all membership regulations, all. That's a A-L-L. That's not my opinion if you're just a heavy drinker. It's not my opinion if you're not an alcoholic. It's all. We abandoned all membership regulations. One dramatic experience after another clinched this determination until it became our universal, our universal tradition. That'll become important in oncoming traditions. Here are two examples. On the AA calendar, it was year number two. In that time, nothing could be seen but two struggling, nameless groups of alcoholics trying to hold their faces up to the light. A newcomer appeared at one of these groups, knocked on the door, and asked to be let in. He talked frankly with that group's oldest member. So we had a leader. Right? Makes sense. He soon proved that this was a that his was a desperate case, and that above all, he wanted to get well. Sounds like our guy. But he asked, "Will you let me join your group?" Ooh, this is gonna fly in the face of something. You guys ready? Here it comes. Since I am the victim of another addiction, even worse stigmatized than alcoholism. You may not want me among you, or will you, or will you? The desperate man says, please, please, please help me. There was the dilemma. What should the group do? I mean, is there really any question about that? But there sure was then. The oldest member summoned two others and in confidence laid the explosive facts. I love that. Because this was really disruptive to the purity of the true alcoholics that were otherwise respectable. You know, you get the idea. The explosive facts right in their laps said he, well, what about it? If we turn this man away, he'll soon die. If we allow him in, only God knows what trouble he'll brew. Nothing positive in that typical alcoholic, right? It's all bad. It's, it, I, I don't know what to say, fellas. It's all bad. Every single, it's just terrible. Either he dies or who knows what kind of trouble happens. Hmm. It's all bad. Hmm. What shall the answer be? Yes or no? Yes or no? At first, the elders could look only at the objections because that's our nature. We deal, they said, with alcoholics only. People have interpreted another tradition, which we'll get to the fifth tradition, to mean just that. We deal with alcoholics only. Shouldn't, shouldn't we sacrifice this one? Shouldn't we condemn this guy to death? Shouldn't we just kick out this one dude for the sake of many? So went the discussion while the newcomer's fate hung in the balance. Then one of the three spoke in a very different voice. What we are really afraid of, he said, is our reputation. We are much more afraid of what people might say than the trouble this strange alcoholic might bring. As we've been talking, Five short words have been running through my mind. Something keeps repeating to me the still small voice, the God, God consciousness. Hmm. What would the master do? What would God do? What would the higher power do? What would the universal spirit do? What would the ultimate reality do? Not another word was said. What more indeed could be said? Because the answer to that question is obvious, right? It rains on everybody, sun shines on everybody. It doesn't make any difference who they are. 
we are to be of maximum benefit to them and God. That's just as simple as that. Here's a critical idea again. Overjoyed, overjoyed, a desperate, a desperate man showing up at the door asking for help is going to get it. He says he's overjoyed. The newcomer plunged. <laughs> he didn't just say, well, you know, uh, I got to get through the steps. I'm going to do, because it matches the calendar, we're going to do 12 steps and 12 months. And, you know, it'll be really cool. And I'll, I'll meet my sponsor on Saturdays at 10 a.m. because I can fit that in. And, uh, you know, I'm really looking forward to working the steps and my growth over the next year. No, it says, overjoyed, the newcomer plunged into 12-step work. The newcomer plunged into service to other people. The new pl newcomer plunged into trying to practice these principles in all his affairs. Tirelessly, he laid AA's message before scores of people. Think about it. Are you doing this? Since this was a very early group, those scores have since multiplied themselves into thousands. Never, groundless fears, never did he trouble anyone with his other difficulty. They were absolutely baseless. AA had taken its first step in the formation of Tradition 3. It's fantastic. So you'll hear this a lot, you know, that the singleness of purpose is to only talk about alcoholism, to keep your discussion to alcohol, blah, 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 blah. You hear that a lot. And there's, of course, a great deal of validity to that. And that works. And that's an important part. However, it is not a basis for membership. It's not a basis for membership. It's a relational and empathetic basis for sure, but it has nothing to do with whether or not someone wants to be a member of AA. The only requirement is a desire to stop drinking. That's it. That's it. There's no, no declaration, no rule beyond that. There's no one in any group that gets to make that decision, but the individual for themselves. So, you know, it, it's a great freedom to be able to do that. Hmm. So it goes on. Not long after the man with the double stigma knocked for admission, AA's other group received into its membership a salesman we call Ed. So this is the story of Ed the Atheist. I love this story. It parallels my own story in some ways. And Ed is my guy. I like a power driver, this one, and a brash as any salesman could possibly be. He had at least an idea a minute on how to improve AA. There's a dozen of those in every group, right? These ideas he sold to fellow members, he'd lobby them and, hey, you know what we ought to do? We ought to do this or that. And this comes up again in the fourth tradition. And we'll, I look forward to going over that with you. With the same burning enthusiasm with which he distributed automobile polish. But he had one idea that wasn't so sellable. Ed was an atheist. At least he thought he was. His pet obsession was that AA could get along better without its God nonsense. This God nonsense. Oh my gosh, you guys. I thought you were educated people. How could you believe such nonsense? This God nonsense. He browbeat everybody and everybody expected that he'd soon get drunk. And here's, here's the problem with that. We're going to go over it. Well, a lot of us think that, right? Somebody walks in, we're like, man, that guy ain't going to make it. That, that girl ain't got a chance. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not going to gauge them. They, they, they're just some, nah. And which we just rationalize ourselves right out of the 12 step, right out of this tradition of membership, right out of all of it, right out of the idea that the first guy with the double stigma actually was one of the most fantastic members in the group, right? Right out of all that. And people want to do this when this happens, the atheist centers a lot. There's like some sort of primal thing about this one. 
It says he browbeat everybody, and everybody expected that he'd soon get drunk. For at that time, you see, AA was on the pious or very religious side. There must be a heavy penalty, it was thought, for that blasphemy, the lack of respect of God. Blasphemy! Distressingly enough, Ed proceeded to stay sober. What? He's not supposed to do that. We've already declared him not going to stay sober. At length, the time came for him to speak in a meeting. We shivered, for we knew what was coming. Yep. You guys have met this dude before, I'm sure. He paid a fine tribute to the fellowship. Yeah, AA's fantastic. I love, I love all you guys, right? He told how his family had been reunited. I've gotten so much out of these steps in this program. Thank you so much. He extolled the virtue of honesty. I've learned to get along in life on life's terms. He recalled the joys of 12-step work. I love helping other people. And then he lowered the boom, cried Ed. I can't stand for this God stuff. It's a lot of malarkey for weak folks. This group doesn't need it, and I won't have it. To hell with it. A great wave of outrage, resentment, engulfed the meeting. I've, I've been in meetings. He just, <laughs> it's hilarious. It's like, womp, womp, I can't deal with it. We got an atheist head in here. Sweeping every member to a single resolve. Out he goes. We can't have this outsider. The elders led Ed aside. They said firmly, you can't talk like this around here. You'll have to quit it or get out. So all of a sudden the rules come back. You know, don't be saying nothing bad about old G.O.D., right? Don't be doing that. We're not going to have that. Hmm. With great sarcasm, Ed came back at them and now do tell. Is that so? He reached over to a bookshelf and took up a sheet of papers. On top of them lay the forward to the book Alcoholics Anonymous, then under preparation, and he read aloud. Tradition number three, the only requirement for AA membership is a desire to stop drinking. Relentlessly, Ed went on, when you guys wrote that sentence, did you mean it or didn't you? Did you mean it or didn't you? Do you mean it as a member of AA, as a self-declared member of AA? Are you going to afford the next guy, the next lady, the next person? Are you going to afford them that same right you had to declare themselves? Are you going to do it? Did you mean it or didn't you? Dismayed, the elders looked at one another for they knew he had them cold. They were nailed. This is over with. So Ed stayed. Ed not only stayed, he stayed sober. Month And everybody's wishing he wouldn't, right? Isn't that horrifying? Month after month, the longer he kept dry, the louder he talked against God. So he's digging in his heels. He can feel that tension. He's not willing to rest with that tension. He wants to enhance that tension. The group was in anguish so deep that all fraternal, all brotherly love, all fraternal charity had vanished. When, oh, when, groaned the members to one another, will that guy get drunk? That's awful. That's awful. But we'll get to that in a second because I've had that thought for sure. And what I'll tell you is this, that there's a point of desperation that's necessary for people to grab onto the spiritual element of our program. And so long as they don't grab onto the spiritual element of our program, meaning some sort of belief in some sort of higher power that we loved in the program that's commonly called God, if they can't do it, then they can't do it because that's the foundation of the whole deal. And it's a struggle for them and they become more angry and they become more resentful, and you watch it. And even though they get the promises of the program because they do the work, they just won't let that pride down, that ego down enough 
to experience the spiritual element, the emotional element, the sense of connectivity, the willingness to work in a common job, the idea that you're just a part of the ants on the anthill, right? That there's nothing great or not great about you. And at both the same time, you're extremely important to God and unimportant to God. And they just can't get, right? They just don't get. So they're just hoping, right? They're hoping this guy gets drunk. And what they're really saying is, can he get desperate enough? Is there a place where this guy will relent this silly argument that has no basis? It doesn't make any difference. Who cares what he believes, right? Why can't Ed just keep his opinion to himself? It goes on quite a while later. Ed got a sales job, which took him out of town. Rut row. Uh-oh, he's traveling now. And his message, his atheism is on the road. At the end of a few days, the news came in. He'd spent, sent a telegram for money and everybody knew what that meant. Then he got on the phone. In those days, we go anywhere on a 12-step job, no matter how unpromising. Hmm, will you do that? But this time, nobody stirred. The group rejected him. They said, nope, leave him alone. Let him try it by himself for once. Maybe he'll learn a lesson. And we see this reflected in the big book in working with others. We're to express our concerns and leave the book and leave it up to them. We focus on the family if they're interested, but if they're not, we walk away. We leave it alone. Two employers says the same thing. You offer him the set of circumstances as you see it. You let him know that you believe he's gravely ill. You tell him at the next spree, this thing's over with. And that's that. You just leave it there. It's tough. And what you're really honestly looking for, and those terms are also in the 12 and 12 in the big book, is when someone is desperate enough and eager for the solution as we offer it. I know it doesn't seem right, but that is how we do it. After about two weeks later, Ed stole by night into an AA member's house. Great way to say he did an old B&E, right? <laughs> Breaking and entering. Stole by night into an AA member's house and unknown to the family, went to bed. Daylight found the master of the house and another friend drinking their morning coffee. A noise was heard on the stairs. To their consternation, which is just, oh my gosh, I'm surprised, Ed appeared. A quizzical smile on his lips, he said, have you fellows had your morning meditation? He was ready to listen to this God. They quickly sensed that he was quite in earnest. So desperate, eager, in fragments, his story came out. In a neighboring state, Ed had holed up in a cheap hotel. After all his pleas for help had been rebuffed, these words rang in his fevered mind. They have deserted me. I have been deserted by my own kind. This is the end. Nothing is left. He's perfectly positioned. As he tossed on his bed, his hand brushed the bureau nearby, touching a book. Opening the book, he read, it was a Gideon Bible. Hmm. Hmm. Not that darn Bible. Urgh. It was a Gideon Bible. Ed never confided any more of what he saw and felt in that hotel room. <laughs> it was the year 1938. He hasn't had a drink since. Nowadays, when old-timers who knew, know Ed foregather, that means to come together as a group, they exclaim, what if we had actually succeeded in throwing Ed out for blasphemy? Blasphemy! What would have happened to him and all the others he later helped? 
So the hand of providence, that's the manifest destiny of God. The hand of providence early gave us a sign that any alcoholic is a member of our society when he, she, they say so. So as we get out of the third step and move to a discussion, just get in touch with all your own fears, opinions, and habits. Think about how you instantly judge people when they share or they walk in the door and you, you see them, you know, there's, it's such a selfish reference for me, right? I, I think in terms of me and how I see them and how they affect me and blah, 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 blah. You know, the selfishness, self-centeredness, self-pity, self-righteousness, the things that breed resentment, the, the things that are all, all the greatest risk for me. And can I just drop my opinions, my fears, opinions, and my habits? Like I go to this meeting at this time and I see these people and we talk this way and this is how we do it. And I really don't want anybody intruding or disrupting that. You know, how does this stuff put you at risk? And how can you overcome that? Or, and if you have overcome that, how do you do that and help others? One of the things I like to suggest to my sponsees when they're new, as we learned in our guide that had the dual stigma, as it's put in there, is I ask them that from the very get-go, be the first person, when you see someone get a white chip or you see someone new, be the very first person to go up to them and say, I'm new too, and I'm glad you're here. I'm, I feel, think, want, wish, desire, whatever. Just tell them the truth because you're probably going to relate to them. The names change, the faces change, the things on our mind at our first AA meeting don't seem to change all that much. And if they're desperate and eager, they'll be very glad very glad that somebody introduced themselves. One of the great elements of the AA fellowship is the friendliness we can bring to anyone. Nobody arrived in our show uh, on a winning streak, right? Nobody arrived in our program by doing what was right. There's no such thing as the moral alcoholic. This <laughs> is not something that exists. So with compassion, humility, love, kindness, patience, gentleness, the things that our book teaches us through the steps, having had a spiritual awakening, approach people. And if you haven't had that spiritual awakening, you may have it if you'll just try to make someone else feel welcome, no matter what their circumstances. So how can we do that? How can we do that? There's further discussion around this idea in the fifth tradition. So it's a, and we're going to graduate to it through the fourth one. The discussion today is, how do we confront our own prejudice and desire for rules to satisfy our own vision of how AA ought to be? I hope you have a great discussion.